We're still continuing our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes, Searching for Meaning. Why are we here today? Last Sunday we saw how from an earthly perspective there's a darkness that seems to prevail. That through the course of a human life many tears are shed. And regarding whatever area of life we examine, if we do it from an earthly perspective, that is, if our examination of life leaves out God, then we will see oppression without comforters. We will see work that is lonely and meaningless. We will see people who do not have the companionship of family. And we'll see even lonely leaders. And in this case, in Solomon's case, a lonely king. We saw all of that in chapter 4. And so as we move on uh, in chapter 5, then we uh, come to the fact that not only do we have these uh, darknesses, but we also have some light that comes into the picture. Uh, light that light that comes by means of different things that you and I can do. Uh, light that can help us enjoy and find improvement in our lives and and very quickly. And one of those we saw uh, last week was just the idea of being content. Being content in whatever circumstances. And we look to Paul's writing in Philippians how there was a man who in prison was able to say, I find that I'm able to be content whether I've got plenty or not very much at all. Because he found strength in Christ. And the second way that we were shown that brings relief, some light at the end of the tunnel, a way for us to find relief, uh, is to be in community. We are not created to be alone. In fact, the Bible speaks about being single as adult as the gift of celibacy. We're not created to be alone. We're created to be in community. And that's why we saw in our text last week how the writer said two is better than one. And there is strength found in a cord of three. But I want to suggest this morning that I think there's another area that should be bringing light. An area that should be helping our lives to be full of radiance, full of splendor. And it has to do with worship. Why are we here today? You see, a major problem 
And I think a problem that we have to deal with, both individually and corporately as the church, is that meaninglessness and triviality often invade our religious life, just as it does in other areas. I was looking through the songs that we were going to be singing this morning. And I noticed in the one song as we sang, Holy, 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 talking about the seraphim and the cherubim falling down before thee, laying the crowns down. And again, I I don't know why I did it, but uh, I was sitting in the office and the wife and daughter were busy doing some things yesterday afternoon, some that needed to be done to get ready for the camp. And so I put up on my computer Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And before I got up from my desk, and it was only an hour and a half before I got up from my desk, I read Revelation in one sitting. And I was struck I was struck by the fact that the emphasis of Revelation is not about predicting the future. The emphasis of Revelation is about proclaiming that God is sovereign and God will be there to protect us through tribulation, through trouble, if we will remain loyal and not succumb in that case to the demands being placed by the Roman Empire. There are times when each of us, whether it's brought on by the dullness of our routines, what one writer identified as the meaninglessness of mechanical worship, whether it's brought on by the dullness or even the superficiality of our singing, Or possibly the lack of engagement. The lack of participation. I mean, I shared with you how I don't know what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. But our worship service should not be a time of entertainment where a person stands on a stage and entertains everybody. We need to be actively involved in our time of worship. And when we allow... A lot of these other things to become routine, to become mechanical, then we begin to trivialize the worship experience itself. That's one of the reasons why uh, I chose that passage that's been on our screen all month last month, but to use it as our call to worship again. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Verse 9 of that same chapter, 96. In other words, worship, when we come together, is to be in the beauty. That's what splendor means. It's to be in the beauty of holiness. Matthew Henry, uh, regarding this, wrote, We must worship Him with holy hearts, sanctified by the grace of God, devoted to the glory of God, and purified from the pollution of sin. In other words, we need to be coming to worship in a reverent manner. To worship as 
as the writer said, with a, a sense of awe, trembling. Trembling in fear. Now, there are two kinds of fear. There's what people refer to as servile fear, the fear of a servant for a, a brutal master. Or there is filial fear. It's the fear that I had as a child growing up in my father's home. Not that I was afraid that he was going to abuse me, but just the fear of not pleasing him. The fear of him being upset when I would hear my mother say, you wait till your father gets home. Now, he was a disciplinarian. And I am so thankful today that my father was a strict disciplinarian. I will argue till I'm blue in the face that his use of his hand or his belt on the backside of my body where there are no major organs but just fleshy tissue did not harm me in any way but enabled me to be the person that I am today. I wouldn't be standing before you if he had not been the disciplinarian that he was. It's a good kind of fear. A fear that enables us to move toward God and to grow in love of God. Now, people who ridicule reverence in worship And there are many who do that. We've got a bunch to do today. And I I just, I didn't know how much time I would be having to make a lot of changing of clothing back and forth. And, uh, you know, it's not easy for me to come with a pair of jeans on, with a shirt, and without a jacket. And uh, so I found my darkest, nicest pair of jeans, and uh, I couldn't do without the tie, though, if I wasn't going to have the jacket. And I've had discussions. I've had discussions with young ministers of churches who are comfortable in their jeans, sometimes not even dark blue jeans. And their polo shirts without ties. The one question they've never been able to answer me is why is it that if you were told today the President of the United States or the Governor of the state is going to come and attend worship, why is it that you wouldn't have your blue jeans and your t-shirt on And so the question is, how are we showing our reverence? Now, I don't think you have to have fancy clothes on by any stretch of the imagination. I think jeans and a t-shirt are fine. If that's how you were brought up. And you're comfortable with that. Because, you see, what's important is how we are tuned in. And, and how we are willing to open up and confess. 
That's what worship is about. And the psalmist there in chapter, in that, in that Psalm 96, gives several reasons uh, that are sprinkled throughout. That God is great, verse 4. That God is, is alone God, verses 4 and 5. That God is the creator of all things. That He is filled with majesty and splendor that we read here in verse 6. And that His sanctuary is filled with His strength and beauty. And I think with the last of these reasons, the psalmist has been asserting that the temple was a holy place that reflected the strength and the beauty of God. And so I ask again, why are we here today? Do our own worship services display the same splendor and beauty? Now obviously, I'm not talking about the bells and the smells. I'm concerned about whether or not we're just going through the motions, not really giving our total attention, our concerted effort, not really focusing on what we're doing, what we're singing, what we're saying, or are we allowing ourselves to be distracted by almost anything? To interject a little bit of humor, Jim Winter in his book called That's Life, it got renamed later, uh, or excuse me, uh, in Derek Tidball's book, That's Life, uh, which got renamed several printings, Derek Tidball tells the story of a young man who came to a meal. And when he got to the meal, it was, it was at Cambridge College, which is known for its formality. And uh, when he got there, he was told that he was going to be asked to give the grace before the meal. And he was going to be asked to do it in Latin. Now, that particular young man, apparently they didn't realize it, didn't know God. He was an atheist. And he didn't know Latin. But he was quick thinking. And so, as everybody stood, he intoned, Amo lux domestos probat ajax. Amen. And everybody repeated, Amen. And everyone sat down to eat. And no one seemed to have even noticed that there was not a single word of Latin included in the phrase. Is that really surprising? Because for many, worship can become a meaningless exercise. Just a ritual that we go through each week as we do our duty. And it becomes meaningless. In fact, Tyndall points out that a life devoted to self The accumulation of riches and the pursuit of pleasure is ultimately meaningless even if you try to dress them up in Christian terms. Now in our text for today, the preacher takes great pains to make sure that our worship isn't meaningless. 
And so I've chosen from the very last verse of the text that we are using to title my message, In Awe of God. Look how Solomon begins. Turn there to chapter 5 if you have it in front of us, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that what they are doing is evil. Notice how Solomon begins. Notice what he's stressing. He's talking about preparing for worship. And he states very simply that we need to be thinking about where we are as well as what we're doing. Now in our case, the New Testament makes it very plain that what is meant in the Old Testament when it says the house of God is now to be understood as the church and comprises a living temple. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, listen, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the church. This building is not the church. Now, I'm guilty of it. I'll say to my wife, I'm going down to the church. And I'll be here by myself sometimes. That's not the church. This building is not the church. We're the church. That's why, again, Paul would write to the Christians at Corinth, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now listen to me. English as a language is atrocious. Downright horrible. At least my wife and her family and all of her friends understood the second person plural. It's you individually and it's y'all. And when Paul is writing here, he is not using you in the singular. Do you as a church not know that you as a church are God's temple? And that God dwells by means of His Spirit in you as a church? And that if anybody tries to destroy, if any of you as the church try to destroy this group in any way, shape, or form, then God's going to destroy you. You see, He's not saying to any one individual in particular. It's not a verse to use as a proof text for physical training. 
Paul is addressing this statement to us as a corporate body, to his church. And so once again, I have to stress, there is no relationship with God apart from a relationship with a body of believers. Exclamation mark. Not period. End of sentence. So how do we go about preparing for worship? Many of you know my practice. I try to get down here to the building somewhere around 8 o'clock. I feel like when I get here like I did this morning at 8.30 that I'm running late. Uh, But that's okay because I was here at 5.45 this morning. Uh, I don't know any of you early birds were out. But this church was full at 6 o'clock this morning. Last night, there was a a wake among our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters here at the church. And this morning, bright and early, they were having the completion of their funeral service and taking the casket for the burial service early this morning. Uh, My practice is to get here early. To go into my office and listen to Christian music and go through my message again and try to get myself ready for worship. I can't walk into the doors, shake a couple hands, sing a verse, uh, read a verse from Psalm and, and get into worship. It's not enough time to get rid of all the extraneous. And sometimes, I don't want to do it, but sometimes I've been tempted to shut my door and have everybody wandering around wondering if I'm even here. Just to have that quiet time, that alone time with God, to get prepared. I heard someone put it this way. We have to be spiritually alive, which God will do for us when we totally submit ourselves to Him. We have to be spiritually assisted which is what God has done for us by giving us the Holy Spirit when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But then He said, and we must be spiritually active. The word Solomon uses in that first verse when he says to listen, to draw near, to listen... That doesn't allow us to just listen. It's it's not a word that says it's okay to let it go in one ear and out the other. It's a word that requires obedience to what you're hearing. And so it is that James writes in chapter 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And so it is in Colossians chapter 3 that Paul would write, and let the peace of Christ rule, be thankful, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You hear all these things that we are to be doing? And whatever you do in word or deed, he goes on, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We are not to be sitting here as funnels just taking in 
We're to be actively worshiping. And that's why Solomon says and talks about the sacrifice of fools. That he or she has placed his mouth in drive before they put their mind into action and engaged. And so worship gets reduced to just verbal, physical doodling. You ever doodle? I read a book that says that well-trained people can look at your doodles and kind of know what's going on inside you. So I try to always throw away all my doodles. (laughs) And sometimes that's where our worship goes. We're not engaged, we're just doodling. So the first question that we need to answer is, how are we guarding our steps? The second issue that our teacher or preacher addresses to us is moving beyond the matter of our preparation. It has to do with our manner of participation. His focus is now on how we are, in fact, going about proclaiming our worship. Verses 2 and 3. It's a command. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. The reason we're given the command to be prepared is found in the distance between us as people and God. Now the big terms are transcendence and eminence. And in terms of transcendence, how God transcends, how He exceeds, how He surpasses. If we truly understood the gulf that exists between us as defiled and self-centered and sinful people and a holy, enthroned God, we wouldn't want to open our mouths. We would be speechless, unable to speak, far less to speak any rash and hasty words as I already said above the beauty is is that we can be spiritually assisted I love that passage that says even when you don't know what to say in your prayer the spirit will translate your grunts and groans to God on your behalf we have God's Holy Spirit indwelling us guiding us informing us And that's why we're actually called to be careful in our worship, not casual. And that leads right into the third point. And that is is that worship is serious business. Remember what Paul said? God's temple is holy. You are the temple. Anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy them. Our preacher teacher draws a picture for us. It's a picture of the folly that can easily overwhelm us. And he does it by comparing the produce of an over-busy mind. He used dreams. Uh, Have have anybody done a, a sleep study? I did, and they filmed it. And I was able to go back and watch. And there were times at which my eyes were open, even though I was sleeping, And there was rapid eye movement. They say that's when you're in the deepest part of your sleep. But your mind is just busy, busy, busy. 
That's what the psalmist is using. That busyness that occurs so quickly in our dreams. Those things that occupy our minds. And sometimes those things that occupy our minds during a busy day or a busy week. For instance, today, it would be tempted, tempting for me to think, oh man, we got to make sure we get out of here on time because we got to eat and then get over to the graduation. And after the graduation, we've been invited to a, a graduation get-together and on and on. And just all of a sudden, I'm not in worship. My mind is elsewhere. So that's why he writes to us, verses 4-7, to seven, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay repaying it. For He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and to destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So it is that Derek Kidner comments on these first seven verses that we've read by saying the reiterated word fool is scathing. For to be casual with God is an evil, verse 1, a sin, verse 6, and a provocation that will not go unpunished, verse 6. You see, these same sentiments, Solomon must have really believed this strongly because he even speaks of it in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. Vows or promises were an integral part of Jewish worship. The worshipers would often commit themselves to some kind of action and usually the offering of sacrifices if God would grant their requests. Aren't we guilty of that ourselves? How often have you heard someone cry out, God, if you'll only do this or that, then I'll do this. I have a close family member who faced double bypass. And they said, oh, pray. Because, man, if God takes care of this and gets us through this, we'll, we'll get active in church and start worshiping. And God got them through the surgery and they did start going to church for a while. For a while. So listen to me. Isn't it also fitting that you and I take seriously the vows that we make in worship when we're singing? I would rather look out and see somebody look at the hymn book or look at the screen and go, keep their mouth shut, than to hear them sing. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve Thee to the end and then go out the door and not do anything again in terms of service till they show up next Sunday morning. 
Christianity is not about an hour or so on Sunday morning. It's about 24-7, 365. A vow is a bond that's made even upon the soul. That's what Matthew Henry wrote. And that's why we need to be careful. For the text goes on to say, it's better that you shouldn't even vow than make a vow and not, not pay it. How many idle promises do we make to God in the emotions of the moment, in a charged atmosphere? Remember the parable Jesus told? Man had two sons. He went to the sons and he said, I want you to do this. The one son said, oh yeah, Dad, I'll do it. But they didn't do it. The other son said, no, Dad, I'm not going to do it. But then was pricked in his heart and went and did what the Father had asked. And Jesus asked those who are listening, who did the will of the Father? Not the person who said, oh, I believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God, and I take Him as my Lord and Savior, but then don't do anything. It's the person who gives their life in loyalty and obedience. So Solomon repeats that warning of verse 2. To not be rash with our mouths, no let our hearts be hasty. And this is serious. I can't stress it enough. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Book of Acts? What'd they do? They made a vow. We're going to sell some property and we're going to give all the proceeds to the church just like Barnabas did. Did they keep their vow? No, they held some of it back. And when Peter confronted first Ananias and said, isn't this what you said? Yeah. Is this how much you got for the property? Why, yeah, gave it all the Lord. He dropped dead. And it says that the feet of the people carrying him out to bury him were barely out of the door when Sapphira, his wife, came in and asked the same question, also agreed that that's what happened. Yeah, they vowed to give it all. And they did. But they really didn't. And she dropped dead. Now, I'm not talking about an Old Testament story. Oh, that harsh, mean God of the Old Testament. I'm talking about something that happened in the book of Acts. Stressing to us the importance of keeping our vows. Being people of integrity and generosity. Not deceitful. And so Solomon sums it up like this. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Stand in awe. So here's my conclusion by way of a question. Are you possibly practicing a make-believe religion? Maybe you've seen what one person saw and wrote about. 
He said, people make empty vows because they live in a religious dream world. They think somehow that their words are the same as their deeds. And when that takes place, their worship is not serious. So their words aren't dependable. I've seen it too often at church camp. Paul and I sat down a couple weeks ago and talked about it again because we had had this conversation a couple years ago about how in a week of senior high camp we can try to allow emotions to be a part of it but not let it slip into emotionalism. And he and I talked about some campers that we've had over the years that every year show up for that week of camp and they get all excited and and they dedicate their life to Christ. They make a vow that they're going to do something and they don't come through with it. And one of those young ladies not too long ago posted on Facebook I wish I could come and help you with your week of camp this summer, Paul. But she can't. Because she has had no active worshiping life since she was at camp two summers ago. And we made it a rule. If you're not actively involved in your church, and we're not talking perfect attendance, but if you're not actively involved in your church, don't allow church camp to become your church. It's there to assist and come alongside. And so we just dream sometime about fulfilling our vows. But tragically, we never get around to doing it. And thus, we begin to practice a make-believe religion that neither glorifies God nor builds up Christian character. What's the number one complaint still of the church by the world? Those people, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Are you possibly practicing a make-believe religion? Let's pray.